0: I've learned that, you know, because I've regretted working on certain things and maybe somebody else was working on something so much cooler and I realized that with every opportunity that you're involved with comes another opportunity Mm -hmm. and, you know, and and that's happened, you know, throughout uh, every step of your life, you know, and I think we get so immersed in oh, how's this going to benefit me? And is there something better that we overshadow how beneficial what we're doing right now can be?
1: Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting The backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from an educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Thank you for listening today. Before I introduce my guest for today's show, I wanted to tell you about an offering that uh, Enterprises, my company, has for career counseling. My question to you is, are you new to the business? Are you restless for a new opportunity? Are you a mid-career professional that is uncertain about your situation? Or Are you a senior executive that's ready for a next career or moving on to something new? What I offer is the opportunity for you to sit with me for two one-hour sessions. I give you an assessment that you provide for me prior to the first meeting, and then we go through that, and then we devise a three-year plan potential. For our second meeting, then I would go over that with you. For follow-up after that, we would then point you in the direction of how to implement that plan. If this is of interest to you, please reach out to me at john at coenterprises.com, J-O-H-N at C-O-E-E-N-T-E-R-P-R-I-S-E-S Thank you for listening to this and on to the show. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Icons of DC Area Real Estate. Today, my guest is David Kessler CEO of Cohn Resnick, a national accounting firm that now offers multiple services to its clients yet its roots were real estate related He came up in the Bethesda office through the real estate practice under the tutelage of David David Resnick the founder of Resnick Federer, and Silverman Cohn Resnick's predecessor company. David talks about the firm his background growing up in the DC area and attending Maryland and focusing on accounting inspired by his family's business background. He speaks to the evolution of his career at Resnick, Feder, and Silverman, the changes in the industry over time, his influences in his career, the pandemic and its influences on the firm and the industry, and his advice to not only young Accounting professionals, but all business people on conducting your business. So please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with David Kessler. Welcome, David, to Icons of D.C. Area Real Estate. Thank you for joining me today. It's Good wonderful to, to be
0: here with you. It's it's fantastic. I uh, I'm honored and I'm humbled to be your guest. So, thank, thank you. you.
1: So, David, tell us about your role at Cone Resnick and how it has evolved since your recent elevation to CEO.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, well, it it evolved real quickly. You know, I've had many roles at, at the firm, including office managing partner with Jim Martinko, leading our commercial real estate practice and our real estate practice with affordable housing and construction. I've served on our executive board and then took over as our CEO February 1st, which was just 45 days before you know, the pandemic really hit and we went into lockdown. So it, it did evolve, you know, real real quickly. You know, I've become much more involved with our overall business, you know, certainly, you know, risks as we entered into the the COVID situation, but a lot with opportunities and strategies and, and our growth strategies throughout our firm. And uh, it evolved quickly because we made we made so many uh decisions, you know, starting, you know, on March uh, you know, twelfth that we were going to shut our offices down throughout the country and work from home you know so we had 2800 employees in the US and 500 employees in India wow. and yeah we 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 transitioned very very quickly and you know work very closely with our board and our leadership team to get to get through where we are today you know and fortunately we're very fortunate you know we're one of the businesses where we could do our work remotely you know we're not a restaurant or hotel or bar or a construction site where we, we had to be in our offices. And fortunately, we, we had the technologies in place and made some minor adjustments so that everybody could work remotely. You know, and we ship equipment and monitors and screens and told people, you know, get what you need, go to the office, get what you need and let us know what you're taking and off to the races and it you know it was literally just before the 315 tax deadline last year you know so we wow we yeah we wrapped all that up and yeah, yeah so we have about 10 or 15 percent of our workforce in in offices now throughout the country and the majority you know large majority are working uh, from home
1: Talk about the scale of your company, how many offices, et cetera, and, and accountants, et cetera. Yeah, sure.
0: We have 19 locations across the country. You know, we're three on the West Coast. We're in Chicago, Texas, and up and down the East Coast from Boston, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Washington, DC, Metro, Virginia, uh, Atlanta, Charlotte, North Carolina. And we have people, you know, all over the country. You know, we have. 30 people in, in, in Miami, we have people that are working out of Denver, Cincinnati, Columbus. Yeah. We're close to 3,000 employees in the U.S., and we have 500 people in Chennai, and we have small offices in in Hong Kong, the Netherlands, and Sydney, really? Australia. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and that's with our, our international real estate practice. We have worked in
1: those areas. I'd like to dive into that a little more a little later on, but before that, maybe you can talk a little bit about your origin story, David. I'd like to hear about you know where you grew up and you know how you what you know, education and on sure. into your career.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I you know born in Washington D.C. Columbia Hospital for Women, which which no longer exists it's and kind of them you know. now. <laughs> yeah yeah it's interesting and you know my 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 parents were born and raised in washington d c really yeah we moved out to the suburbs in uh Adelphi maryland where i was raised when i was i was born and you know i was i was you know re- reflecting on my my education and my schooling and you know i was i was educated through college in prince George's county you know through high school and public schools yeah, public school all the way and the University of Maryland. And, you know, then I, I, I joined our firm right out of college. And what did you
1: your know, what's your, what's your parents do?
0: My, my parents, you know, both my parents worked, you know, through our, our, our childhood, my brother and myself. My, my father was in the, the liquor and spirits business, you know, retail really? and wholesale. And my mom was an administrative uh, assistant for a number of different companies. I definitely saw how hard they worked and their, and their work ethic. And my grandparents, my uh, grandfather was an accountant, actually, sole practitioner in Washington, D.C., uh-huh. and ended up moving and retiring to Miami. And my other grandfather started a business in Washington, D.C. It was a commercial laundry and he ran that uh, until mm-hmm. he retired and, 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 and sold it, sold it off. And we used to talk about business all the time. So he was a very big influence in my life. Interesting. Um, yeah, he, he had sold his business probably when I was, you know, entering high school. And, you know, he saw me become a partner. In the firm, and you know, always, always, always enjoyed you know talking business, and and I always enjoyed that with him. And uh, the one thing that that I remember is, is he said, you know, if it's not broken, change something anyway. You know, (laughs) always good to change, and I always remembered that, and I thrived in the environment. You know, over thirty plus years because you know my my day day to day and week to week and month to month and year over year changes all the time and I, I just i've thrived in change
1: that's interesting because you uh, in accounting you, you try to keep things fairly steady and smooth but sometimes things just don't go the way you project <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: exactly <laughs> exactly you can plan you know it, it's kind of like construction you know you, you can plan it and you know you you always have to have a plan B C D because the timing always changes the conditions always change and uh, When I know. do a
1: discounted cash flow, and, you know, as a kid or when I was growing up in the business, you, you do the analysis, you say, okay, well, this is how it's going to work. I've only once or twice gone back and looked at my analysis 10 years after to see if it worked or not, you know,
0: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and well, it
1: rarely we, we does. Of course, well,
0: so. We used to always have a joke, you know, when we're, when we're doing in hindsight, you <laughs> know, an auditor tax return, you know, we used to always have a joke, you know, that, okay, to original projections, we're going to have to adjust everything to the projections.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, when you're trying to convince people to do things, you know, you you have to put something out there as a projection to give them an idea, this is what we believe is going to happen. Absolutely. and it's interesting, you know. I mean, as an accountant, you look at things kind of historically. You don't look at things forward. Finance does forward, typically, in my experience, at least.
0: Right. And right. so you
1: account for things that have happened. You don't look at what's going to happen. Going to happen. You might say, well, based on our experience, we think it's going to happen. But you know, and it's interesting when you're in finance, you're, it's all guesswork. It's making assumptions, throwing things in
0: yeah, yep. more, more, garb- more Garbage art.
1: in, garbage out type of more, thing. So.
0: Yeah, exactly. More art than science, you know. And, and you know, I, I was exposed early on to a lot of financial feasibility and projections because that's a large part of our business is to, you know, run models and financial forecasts on, on deals, you know, whether it's for right. a developer, for an equity provider, institutional investor, you know, and we could be called upon by, you know. Four different parties: a developer, a private equity fund or syndicator, an institutional investor, and a lender. And and we could be engaged by you know all four parties and potentially even a fifth party who's the acquisition of the paper from the lender. And wow. and that's happened before, where you know I'll have five different of our partners representing. Different parties in the same transaction, and they wave conflicts, you know, and they they you know each want us for our expertise, and each is is running models for the party that engaged them, you know, and it and it's it's interesting. I, I've always enjoyed the the coverage that you know we have in that regard, and it, it, it's just a, a, a testament to. Mm -hmm. the the value people see with within our firm you know being on multiple sides of a transaction hey you know it's we're we're lucky enough to be on one side but you know when we can be on multiple sides it's a compliment so i saw i saw projections early on we used to we we still run a lot of models and it's fascinating to see what something you know was projected to be in hindsight you know, when we're when we're looking at, you know, either the audit or the tax return or, or restructuring something, you know, that just didn't work out as to what was originally planned.
1: So your grandfather was a, was a big influence on you, too, for business. And so in, in high school, did you have a thought as to what you wanted to do or when did you really get a sense um, it, that you it, wanted to be an accountant?
0: In high school, I had taken accounting courses and, you know, and I always worked, you know, I worked since I was 14, various jobs. And when I got, you know, into the University of Maryland, and I, 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 you know, knew I wanted to do something in business, the business school, and mm-hmm. I spoke with, you know, guidance counselor, and, you know, I wasn't sure, you know, marketing, finance, accounting. And I got great advice, which was, you know, marketing, you know, maybe even finance, you know, you, you might be able to do that with an accounting degree, you know, but there's no way you're going to get a job in accounting and advance if you don't have an accounting degree. So that made perfect sense to me. So I majored in accounting and, and finance and never looked back. I, I interned at the IRS when I was at the University of Maryland. Uh, I, you know, have lifelong friends that I've met at the University of Maryland, many in uh, the accounting program. And I, you know, was, was pulled into the direction of public accounting when you're in an accounting major and you know that that's the draw I, I did think you know maybe stay at the IRS and go into you know a revenue agent role but you know clearly I, I went I went into the, the public accounting area I interviewed with many different firms when I was at the University of Maryland some of the big eight Kenneth Leventhal, was a, a, a big one out of New York. Sure. I, interviewed, I right. interviewed with them. Certainly, you know, I'm very familiar with with their legacy now, and I didn't know them from Adam when I uh, interviewed with them out of I was I was a, I guess a junior in college, and then I I interviewed with uh, Resnick, Feder, and Silverman. I wanted to hit some of the larger uh, regional firms, and uh, I, I felt as soon as I probably interviewed with ten firms. And then I interviewed with Resnick, Feder, and Silverman was the last firm I interviewed with. They were on my list, and I wanted to make sure I hit them before I made a decision. I had several offers, and I, I just felt a vibe in that office when I was interviewing. I interviewed with the managing partner at the time and two senior associates, of which both of those two are my partners now that interviewed me And in, you know, yeah, in nineteen eighty, you know, four, and who who would have thought, right? They're good friends and partners of mine now. They interviewed me when I was kid. and you know, I just saw there was an electricity and a buzz in in that office, and an excitement that I didn't feel in any other firm or interview or
1: office visit. How big a firm was it at the time you were interviewing? Just out of curiosity,
0: I think there were about eight partners. And maybe a hundred people and two offices, Bethesda and Baltimore. They had just opened the Baltimore office a couple years before. And uh, so two offices, about a hundred people. And and what I didn't realize, you know, when you started public accounting, you know, you you're you're with a class of, of people, you know, now. You know, we're, we're bringing on, you know, 280 people right out of college every year in, in all of our offices. You know, we start about 50 people in Bethesda each year. And, you know, when I started, I started with a group of 12. And, you know, so that's, you know, kind of like your, your fraternity class. And, you know, you're, you're dispersed throughout the firm. And, you know, you have this lifelong bond. Actually, there's, there's one other in my class of 12 that is still at the firm.
1: I'm curious. I mean, you you said you had, you like the electricity and the buzz there. I mean, you know, you think about the big, the big eight at the time. I mean, there's a, you know, a lot of attraction there because of the diversity of those firms, what they do. I mean, Resnick, Federer, and Silverman was always known in my experience as a real estate firm primarily, right? Wasn't that kind of well, its main emphasis?
0: Yeah. I didn't know that when I joined, John. You know, I thought, you know, this is a, uh, really good sized firm you know to me the decision was you know big eight or you know the alternative and I just felt like you know I, I work closely with the big four now and I'm sure I would have had a vibrant career there but I just felt like I, I, I wanted to you know start my career at that next tier and you know I did not realize that the firm specialized in real estate when I joined but I, I quickly learned that. And I quickly learned that, you know, this is a national practice. Uh, out of two offices, we had clients all over the U.S. and traveling all over the U.S. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that's what I think made it, made it really exciting. There were no limitations because of the national reputation for real estate you know, and, and we did have a local practice. Also, there was a partner, Stu Fetter had a local practice, you know, that was more traditional Work private else. client, private client service, you know, type practice that was hmm. localized, but the rest of the firm was very much part of the national real estate practice.
1: So talk a little, let's go back to the time on Resnick Fetter's founding and its evolution as a firm up to the point where you started and then how it grew from there. If you could. Do
0: that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, sure. Um, well, the uh, Resnick, Fetter, and Silverman, David Resnick, Stu Fetter, Ivan Silverman, they worked at what was Alexander Grant, now Grant Thornton. They knew each other from college, and David Resnick and Stu Fetter knew each other from elementary school, actually. And they left Alexander Grant to start Resnick, Fetter, and Silverman in 1977. And, you know, they were fed up with being in a large firm. And They were very entrepreneurial. They were running around the country, you know, specializing in in apartments and decided they were going to start their own firm. And they started their own firm with eight people. And 1977, when I joined in 85, there were 100 people. And, you know, I think they joked around, you know, one of the eight that they started with, they took the file room clerk, you know, from Alexander Grant and, we grew from there, and it, it was a national practice that grew through reputation, through good quality work, through you know. Equipment. What was the main
1: client base when you first started? When it first started, was it all real estate developers, or it was lenders, ma- or what?
0: It was mainly real estate developers. It was mainly apartments. It was mainly affordable housing, okay. and. It was, you know, the, the large companies like the Oxford Developments, the NHP of the world, you know, and all over all over the country. You know, you, you got in, in a plane uh, with your audit bag and went out to the developer's office. We worked with a lot of syndicators and then with the low income housing tax credit in uh, 1986 tax act you know 1987 that, was, when that, really that was a big saw, change that big change yeah. you know we we became the tax credit gurus and you know honestly that's what propelled us into a more corporate world because the you know investors in affordable housing you know became the corporations of the world instead of the the high net worth doctor lawyers private syndications, which we, you know, work with a lot of the syndicators, but we started working with a lot of the major corporations who, when they got into the business of investing in tax credits, they wanted the best to represent them as well and to help them understand the program and run numbers and be in compliance and 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 help them be creative. And so we began working with, you know, some of the larger corporations and, and banks. And, you know, lo and behold, you know, they had a lot of different real estate interests, commercial real estate and lending arms. And we became involved uh, with that and, you know, represent the syndicators. We became experts with historic tax credits, new market mm-hmm. tax credits, you know, still very involved. And uh, very much at the forefront of that. And then, you know, morphed into commercial real estate. You know, I helped grow our commercial real estate practice and we became all things, all things real estate. You know, we've probably worked on, you know, every asset class you can imagine, every stakeholder, you know, developers, national, multi-generational Developers, uh, real estate companies, to you know. How about
1: REITs? Are you involved with REITs? Uh,
0: we are. We are. I've worked on some of the the initial REIT IPOs back in the '90s, mm-hmm. and we continue to work with REITs. And you know what we what we don't do with audit and tax. Sometimes you know the the underwriters, you know, in the 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 market will require a big four firm. For some of the assurance services, that's where we come in, and we're involved heavily in consulting, international tax structuring, valuation, cost segregation systems. We do a lot of major systems implementations, asset management, property management, investment management, a lot of data analytics, and things of that nature for you know some of the largest real estate companies you know in the world internationally, you know which which for an audit. You know they're gonna they're gonna need a big four in there, but we can get in there and, and help out with some of the consulting, some of the systems implementations, and risk and business advisory, cyber security, and things like that.
1: Well, you've just mentioned several things that probably exemplify some of the changes of the of the industry of the accounting industry over the last thirty years since you've been it. What are the in your mind? What are the major? shifts that you've seen? Uh, obviously, technology has to be a big part of it, I would assume. Yeah. What, techn- else, have you, what, what else have you seen? Uh, yeah, far-
0: technology is a big shift. You know, we, we see an enormous amount of technology and the, and the larger you you get as a, as a firm, you know, the more significant technology is, the more impact efficiencies can have over, you know, a larger amount of people and, and work. And, you know, we are seeing technology become very important, you know, within our business, you know, and one of the things that always fascinated me about our business in the real estate world is, you know, we, and I enjoy being knowledgeable within the industry, the real estate industry, and being able to bring solutions and creativity to our client base and, you know, share information and be a part of that industry in that world. And also, you know, our company and our industry as accountants and service providers. and, And, you know, what's happening in our business is a lot of what's happening in other industries and other businesses with data, data analytics, using data to help inform decisions and direction and strategy and efficiencies. You know, we're using Robotic processing—we're creating, you know, bots that can go into files and move information around. That can evaluate data and put it in in different places. You know, all that was last year done manually. You know, so you're you're literally stripping, you know, tens and hundreds of thousands of hours out of you know your process That's to become more efficient. Yeah, and you know, the question is always, you know, well when. When are audits and tax returns going to be automated and, and no longer needed? You know, I still I still think you, you're going to need the human element, you know, to navigate through complexities. You know, it was similar, you know, when we opened up in Chennai, the goal was, you know, we're not going to outsource, you know, we're going to hire, we're going to open our own office in Chennai. We're going to hire our own people in Chennai. You know, they're kind of Resnick people and we're going to, you know, augment. Our, our, our resource capabilities in the US with our Chennai team and you know there was the fear oh what's going to happen to all our jobs and all the people we hire and what what they do and you know I can I can say that you know I, I don't even think there's you know we don't even feel that it's impacted our US employee base you know it just becomes a way of doing business where, we're working with people just like we're working with people throughout different offices around the country, you know, which is one thing that is always been unique about our firm is, you know, we, we coordinate throughout all of our offices, you know, so if a a client hires us and they have properties in Chicago and LA and Charlotte and, and Texas, you know, I'll use my teams from around sure. the country to to help facilitate that, and yep. we we so, work as as one national practice, and that's how we work with our with our people in India as well.
1: So, talk about uh, consolidation in the accounting profession. Obviously, when you started, there was the Big Eight. Now it's the Big Four, and of course, your firm and how it it evolved and merged with Cone. So, talk about that evolution and why you made that decision and and what's going on globally in the profession? Why is there consolidation going on? Percent? Yeah,
0: good question. Good question. You know, we went from when I started two offices to 10 with a thousand people. We were the 19th largest firm prior to us merging with J.H. Cohn in 2014. And We grew organically. We grew all those offices except for one, or organically, you know, through a client base in, you know, areas all over the country. We had two offices in LA, Chicago, Austin, Texas, and six on the East Coast. And we were very real estate centric and we were about 80% real estate 250 million well that's you know 50 million of non real estate work you know we have partners that specialized in other things life sciences mm-hmm. technology hospitality government services and we found that it was it was a little hard to compete when you're only known as a real estate firm even though we had expertise you know in this these other areas and you know 50 million of other work is a is a decent size but you know it was overshadowed, you know, by our real estate practice. And we felt like we needed to be have have more of a base in New York. We had a big client base in New York, but very few people there. Mm-hmm. And so we thought, and, and I, in hindsight, we found a great partner in JH Cone. We became Cone Resnick. Their footprint was heavy Northeast. And they had two West Coast offices that were complementary with our West Coast offices and very diverse what was their mix
1: of business relative to you said 80 you were 80 percent real estate what was their mix of business yeah they
0: they might have been uh five or ten percent real estate really and um, and and heavy in manufacturing distribution consumer financial services hospitality you know restaurants chefs Mm -hmm. yeah and we international tax very heavy Cost segregation, vibrant SEC. So you know we. So it was complementary. The- it was very, it was very complementary from a ge- geographic footprint and from a from a services footprint. And you know we we integrated very very quickly, and we we've merged in several businesses since we came together. You know one in the DC metro, one in uh, Boston, and a consulting business, and different partners with different practices we've we've brought in, and. We've grown it, you know, to seven hundred million, and now, you know, I think we stack up as the thirteenth largest um, in the country. And there is a lot of consolidation, you know, within the accounting industry. You know, there's a lot of acquisitions, and I think, you know, smaller firms, you know, we we see. The consolidation and merger activity for a number of different reasons, you know, one is succession, you know, Dave Resnick, you know, we'll talk about, you know, was, was very forward thinking in, in succession and, you know, gave a lot of authority and surrounded himself with good people, you know, to grow and wasn't a micromanager and you know, that's how we grew, you know, to be the 10 offices, a thousand people and the the 18th largest firm in a relatively, you know, short, you know, 30, you know, six year span. And firms typically will look to merge because they don't have a succession plan, you know, and their founders find themselves, you know, without the next generation to take over and you know, pay them out for their interest. And firms maybe have some succession plan, but grow to 100 million and 50, 80, 100, and realize that you know it's hard to compete when you're at that size range because there's an enormous amount of investment required for technology and training and recruiting and, and development of people.
1: I'm hearing you say, correct me if I'm wrong, is that when certain people are ready to, to retire, it has to be a transaction that more or less makes it makes it viable to do it. So, in essence, you have to there has to be a capital event for the firm to to allow for the capitalization of people's you know stock to move forward. Is that is that um, it, of, it, it,
0: yeah, in general? Yeah, unless there is the feeling of of confidence in the next generation that they'll be able to generate and grow enough to be able to pay you out what your equity or interest is that's what Dave Resnick created you know he created a legacy where the firm you know was able to continue and grow you know beyond beyond just him and the original founders you know so we 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 created a succession plan with within Resnick whereby we did have a mandatory retirement and a retirement plan Where partners, when they achieved, you know, the age of 65 would go and they would be, they would be paid out and it was funded through the firm. And you know, we we maintain that today in in our firm, you know, to create succession. And most firms, you know, of size, you know, are in an environment like that where there is succession built into the firm. And it's firms that have not created that succession and when the founders are ready to retire, they may not trust that the folks that are left at the firm are going to be able to pay them out, so they'll, they'll sell. And then firms who are on solid footing, who have created some plan of succession, may just find that they can't compete or can't keep up with technology, that the capital cost is so high that they feel like they need to merge up to another firm. And and we've been the the, the beneficiary of that. And we've been able to bring in other firms, you know, to be part of our platform as a result. But we don't necessarily believe in size for the sake of size. You know, we have a national reputation in a lot of the practices and industries that, that we're in. And I think most clients, you know, we're in the top 15. OK, so, you know, some clients will have a threshold, you know, nationally recognized firm, which in a lot of our industries we're we're nationally recognized. So we're not precluded from winning work because of size. And, you know, we, we're not
1: going to go compete for Fortune 500 audits, basically.
0: Um, and that we're, not gonna, we're not going to compete for Fortune 500 audits. Those audits typically stay at the big four. But what we will do is... A lot of advisory work at Fortune 500 companies and tax work, but on the on the audit work, Fortune 500s, you know, typically are going to require a big four.
1: Right. So when I think of D.C. area accounting firms focused on real estate, I think of you guys and Baker Tilly and there might be other ones, but I'm just not aware of them. Talk about what you guys do to differentiate yourselves from them and other other real estate oriented accounting firms. Yeah, yeah,
0: that's that's a that's a good question. And uh, you know, they're you know, typically we differentiate ourselves by the depth and breadth in the industries that we play in, and in the industry expertise. And you know, certainly real estate. You know, that's you know, today it's you know. 40% of our firm. We have over a thousand dedicated accountants in, you know, every office around the country. And we represent clients, you know, internationally and throughout the US and all up and down the, the capital stack, whether it's, you know, helping somebody, you know, with an MA transaction, portfolio, asset acquisitions, you know, it's it's when we'll win work and we'll compete with other firms. I always ask, why did you choose us? I'm curious. And sometimes we lose, and I'll ask the same question. Why not us? And when I when I hear why you, it's because a couple things. One, you know, the team that you showed up with, you all seem to have a great relationship. You you've worked with each other for dozens of years. You let everybody talk. Everybody had a, a role. It seems like you're very natural with each other. You understood the real estate. And I've heard, you know, you're dirt people and, you know, not not actually, you know, owning or building real estate and like, what yeah. do you mean by that? You know, it's, well, you know, you, you guys understand the real estate, you understand the private equity fund, fund manager viewpoint. You understand the institutional investor life company pension fund endowment viewpoint you understand the lender viewpoint whether it's you know money center bank or you know loan fund and it's because we represent all of those folks and we understand what, what their sensitivities are mm-hmm. what their language is and you know the other guy I'll, I'll here the other firm large firm larger than you guys but they sent somebody that understood funds but they didn't really understand real estate you know, and so we thought there would be some training there. And, you know, and, and I take pride in that because we've built our firm intentionally that way to where it is a national practice and we're all involved in all of it. And, you know, it, it just, first of all, it, it creates fun and excitement because you're always dealing in a different environment. And, you know, probably half our clients, you know, the big four would would be willing to step into and the other half they wouldn't go near because they're too small too entrepreneurial not the size and the scale. I also hear that, you know, with with smaller clients that have just started and somebody will say, you know, are not we too small for you? You know, you know, we just left, you know, XYZ ABC large institutional companies and we're starting up our own shop and we've got a backer and love to work with you but aren't we too small? I say, well, you know what? I mean, we, we were working with Tom Bezuto on his first deal, you know, and right. they don't think sure. we're too small. You're too small for, for, for us. This is fun. This is the excitement. We want to add the value. And you know, we're so willing to... You have we're a willing
1: bottom to up. You have a bottom-up approach. You know, you you work with, with you know, help companies start up, basically, or get going. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Great. And, and, and that's fun. And look, even, even if yeah. it's, you know, even if it's call me anytime, I'm happy to you know, share insights help you out and even recommend a smaller firm to help you with, you know, some bookkeeping and accounting. And, you know, we're happy to review the return or get involved when it when it's time, you know, happy to do that. We want to see you succeed.
1: That's great. So talk about your personal inspirations in accounting. You Um, mentioned David, David Resnick, and I have to assume that he's been one of your major ones.
0: Big, big um, ma- major influence. Absolutely, you know. I learned so much from him and so many others. You know, at the firm and in the industry also. That you know, we're, we're influential in my career. You know, Dave Resnick was right down the hall for me when I started at the firm, so I could literally hear him every single day. I traveled around the country with him, and you know, he he always cared about the clients and the clients' business. And, and the work that, that we did. And it was not about, you know, he, he always used to say to me, he'd call me Davy baby. He'd say, Davy baby, just be fair with the client. Don't worry about our fee, help the client out. It'll come back to us. We're dealing with reasonable people. And he was a big thinker and a problem solver. And he really understood, you know, the transaction and how to maximize a transaction and the results. And also, you know, I learned from him, he relied on so many other people, you know, it was not a ego, you know, solo business for him. This was a, this was a team sport, no question about it. And that, that's what I always enjoyed. And I, I always, you know, kind of look back, you know, I hated being in that. I played a lot of team sports, but in, in college, when we'd have these team projects, in the business class, somebody was always not carrying their weight, you know, and it was always, I always, you know, kind of regretted the team environment in school and you get into the work world and, you know, it doesn't matter where anybody came from, you know, what they liked or didn't like, you you just came together as a team at work and look for a solution for the clients and, and that, that's that's really how we grew, and that's what made it so exciting. You know, travel around the country, helping helping people out, whether they're developers, private equity funds, investors, Fortune 500 companies, and looking for that solution and pulling it all together. So I, I I learned that he relied on on a lot of others. He you know was tireless, cared about people. He would say to me, we would you know later on in my career, we would travel around the country together and visit clients and. He would say, pick me up at five in the morning and and we'll we'll head up to Boston and we've got this one meeting, but, you know, make sure you plan a whole bunch of other meetings for us, you know, and fill the day. We'll take the last flight home. And so, you know, what was, oh, this is going to be a nice, relaxing, you know, day away from the office. We'll have one meeting, you know, became we're you know, running around, anything. running around the city, and, you know, and it was fun. And I learned from him, you know, you can just call somebody up and say, Hey, I'm in town, I'm going to pop yep. in. And then I learned from him, you know, well, well, that's how you get a meeting, you know, you don't call up those guys in Cleveland and say, I want to come out and meet with you. You say, Hey, I happen to be in Cleveland today, Right. you know, right. and then you plan everything else around that. And so, you know, those are some of the things I learned uh, from him. He was very inspirational. So he was a
1: networker then. That was a big part of his, his um, business.
0: When, when he walked into an airplane, he sprinkled a business card on every seat. <laughs> <laughs> he was also very frugal. He made me he made me stay in a in a model unit in an apartment building we were auditing one year to save some money on a hotel. <laughs>
1: So he was a bus- he was your new business guy then basically for the yeah
0: he, he he really was was the new business guy he was the rainmaker you know but he also was very technical and that's also what I learned was you know you you really have to be the full picture and you got to know what you don't know and you got to get help where you need it and you have to always be learning every day.
1: What did he pioneer? Did he pioneer? I mean, obviously, you were in tax credits and some things. I mean, was he? Yeah. Was there something he came up with that kind of set the firm apart, unique
0: process yeah. or something? We, we came up as a firm with a, a lot of unique processes. You know, we we model We still model transactions. You know that that we model for banks, Fortune five hundred companies, developers, and syndicators. And you know, we 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 developed a lot of the modeling, a lot of the diligence process that's involved with that. We we came up with a lot of the new markets tax credit strategies, you know, to mm-hmm. where we help people with, you know, applications and are involved, you know, again, with developers, CDFIs, financial institutions. We work closely with Treasury. We've worked closely with HUD, a lot of state agencies, you know, so he, he's, pioneered working you know and we've been very close with a lot of attorneys in the industry lenders in the industry on interpreting the the rules and regulations and and coming up you know with programs you know that are beneficial to the industry we were we were very involved with hope six I spent a lot of time in you know HUD's 2020 vision which was you know probably 20 years ago working in work groups on panels converting, The manual process of submitting financial statements to an electronic process, you know, those are examples of some of the things that, you know, we were involved with. So, you know, it's both, you know, tax solutions and, you know, how how do you handle deferred development fees, you know, that are, you know, not going to be paid on a deal? How do you handle the acquisition of GP interests after the Mm -hmm. tax period and, and things like that. We've come up with structures and he was very involved with that along with some of our, our tax gurus to working with, with throughout the industry and stakeholders.
1: So, you know, I interviewed attorneys recently and talked a little bit about how they add value to developers. And you've mentioned several functions that accountants do, but if you're a, an early stage real estate development company, what do you typically offer other than tax advice I assume you have business strategy advice that you give people as far as structuring transactions as well as their corporate entities.
0: Yeah, we do. Yeah, we, we do. We do. You know, it, it, it runs the gamut and, it, and it's, it's in- interesting, you know, I'll, you know, be working with a new client or, you know, talking with somebody and, you know, that, that's the question is, you know, I, well, you know, I've been working with this guy for forever, you know, what's different about you. And, you know, I, I always say, you know, there's going to be something that we're going to be able to, you know, add to your business and help you through or introduce you to something new, you know, that, that will change your business. You know, it it, it will change the trajectory of your company. And I, I can't tell you what it is now, but I know it will happen. And I'll give you examples, you know, and we've, we've helped companies from, you know, convert from, being you know a best in class A plus sponsor developer user of institutional capital one-off deals to converting into a discretionary fund structure and you know we don't do everything but we know what you're gonna need for the bones of this business to transfer from what you're doing now to this new environment and we'll hold your hand and we'll walk you through that and you know, we'll, we'll talk to you about all the nuances and what you're going to have to do differently or hire or what you're going to have to outsource. And we don't do that or we can't do that because it's a conflict with the audit. But these are all the people that we work with that do do that. Mm-hmm. And these are the ones we recommend. But why don't you talk to three of them yourself and see who you like? And so, you know, we're very involved with new funds emerging managers we're very involved with large private equity funds in either either doing the fund level audit tax work structuring work diligence planning feeder funds or a lot of times the billion dollar funds have to have a big four auditor it's part of their governance and we'll we'll do everything else we'll work with the jv operating companies and we we do that for a lot of large private equity funds you know we do you know millions of dollars of work with the JV operating companies and tax structuring and planning and diligence and agreed upon procedures on operating companies you know which we do for institutional investors as, as well so you know that that those are some of the things that we do we work very closely with with attorneys we work very closely with you know the thing everybody wants to hear about you know is well, how do I save on taxes? And you know, how, how do I get capital? You know, I need capital. Yeah, uh, you know, I want to start a fund. You know, I I, I you know, want to recap this deal. You know, so we we help through that. You know, we, we are an intermediary. We do have a broker dealer, and and we do use that in some instances. We work with a lot of other intermediaries, capital providers, placement agents that we will refer in and will help out placement agents when they're working with a, a fund and new capital situation. But, you know, we, we get involved with the strategy on, well, well here, here's the various different ways that you can do that. And I, I love that. You know, I got a call from an institutional life company who said, You know, we want to buy this deal. We have some constraints, but the seller also has a lot of constraints. We're buying an interest. And I know you can help them out. Would you mind helping them out? Because if you help them out, it'll help us out, you know, and we'll figure out the, our solution. But you need to help them with their solution. So we get involved with the buyer, the seller, the Broker, the capital markets person, to to figure out all these alternatives and here's tax implications and effects because and help each of them navigate through that. That's something that's very very exciting and it might end up in okay yeah we'll do the auditor tax return on that also and that's you know kind of where we add the
1: value. Yeah, I have a question about a new entity. It's not necessarily a new entity. It's been about five years or so that is kind of a end run around the, the public IPO process, and it's known as a SPAC. And so I'm curious if you've had, come, come in contact with SPACs and been involved in them, and maybe you can explain what a SPAC is and then what your experience has been with them and how that can be perhaps a good tool to go public if that's a, if that's a goal of a company.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We have been and and you know we call it you know the the SPAC attack. There's there's so many new SPAC, you know, it's a special purpose acquisition company and it's kind of the flavor of the day. And this is a company that raises capital, public capital, and it's a blind pool, if you will. So it doesn't own anything, but it has a strategy and it's gonna buy companies and bring them into the public company shell and you know it's kind of the the opposite of a reverse merger into a public company you know because th- this is a initial public offering for this SPAC and then there's been you know billions of dollars raised in these SPACs and all of these SPACs are in the market looking for companies to buy and they have a time period in which they have to buy companies and complete their mission and their strategy. Are they
1: are they a C corporation? Or they, how yeah. are they formed? Yeah C corporation. They,
0: yeah they're they're a C corporation. They're they're public
1: companies. Yep. Mm-hmm. So they have double taxation. They don't have the re tax benefits then per se it converted to that
0: you know there, there, there are our conversion mechanisms you know but you, you could you could also you know do do a, a reIT in a similar fashion by raising money and then acquiring really? properties that's interesting yeah yeah but you know i think the SPACs are providing a lot of liquidity in the marketplace and they're out there looking for companies to buy. So there are companies that, you know, might otherwise, you know, be looking at a liquidity event either through a private equity fund, joint venture, or outright sale. Right. And these SPACs are awesome sources, you know, for, for those companies. So we're doing a lot of work in the for the companies that are targets of SPACs, either. Mm-hmm for the SPAC, working with SPACs, or also working with companies who believe they are targets for SPACs and are getting ready for the diligence process. And, you know, we have a, you know, robust transaction advisory group that does a lot of quality of earnings, diligence work. And, you know, they've they've been, you know, very active and many of our industries, consumer hospitality have been, you know, life sciences, technology have been very involved working with companies who are target for.
1: So if you're that. a large real estate operating company, and I don't know how, what large is determined today. So let's say you have corporate assets of 200 million or 300 million or something like that. You're trying to decide, do I form a fund or should I go merge with a SPAC and become a public company? What decision points, you know, what are the, what are you looking at to help people advise for that type of decision making process?
0: Um, Yeah, that's a, that's an actual live situation. You know, we've, we've been working with companies that have private companies with, you know, let's say multiple assets with Mm -hmm. multiple investors in each asset. Right. Some may overlap and they, are contemplating, you know, what's the my next strategy? What what what's the right thing? And some of it depends on, you know, well, what do you want to do? What do you want to be? And, you know, one of them, we help merge, reverse merge into a public company. You know, so they acquired a public company and then are going to migrate their assets into that public company value all of those individual interests in the properties and investors have the opportunity to leave or stay and become part of the whole. And there's a lot of, you know, both accounting and tax advisory as to how to navigate through that. And, you know, the purpose of that was to get into a perpetual environment where there's, you know, a public investment vehicle to continue, you know, with the firm and seed it with the existing assets that are owned by a diverse group of people and, you know, half of those people might come back in, stay in and get a new valuation of their interest and have professional management and create continuity in the company. You could also have a situation where, you know, you could raise a fund and it could be a discretionary fund and seed the fund with those assets. And same impact for those investors, you know, come into the fund, new valuation, but that fund would have a, it could be an open-end fund, private company, or it could be a closed with a seven-year life couple renewal extensions and ultimately would close out you know so a lot of it depends on the strategy of the owner yep uh, and also for those assets you know are these assets that you know will keep forever or do we want to recycle take our profits off the table and start up a new fund
1: an interesting case study and i interviewed his the ceo is perhaps the largest in this region jbg smith Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so that merger was an interesting one that i talked about a little bit with matt kelly Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it was like the succession plan you talked earlier about i think that was one of the prime impetuses of that merger because some of the senior guys there really wanted to cash out you know more or less leave and
0: you know, a number of, of ways to, you know, similar with, you know, a CPA firm that, you know, matures and the the founders need to cash out. You know, we see a lot in, in the real estate world, you know, where the founders, you know, may need to cash out, but all of their value is tied up in the real estate. So mm-hmm. you need some sort of liquidity event in order to sure. pay them pay them their value. And you know that that's the that's the interesting thing, you know, with real estate is you know what 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 I see is you know so many different strategies where you know you may have institutional investors that are going to force a sale because that's the the purpose of the transaction after three, five, seven years, and you take your sliver of profit and do the next deal. And you know, at any one point in time, you're recycling. And at the end of the day, you know, you, 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 won't own the majority of hundreds of millions of dollars of real estate, you know, or you can, you know, work with a friends and family type structure with, you know, most of your own capital and can build through that and ultimately, you know, own all the real estate yourself. But, you know, that's a much, you know, slower
1: go. And you can, you know, only, go, I, you can yeah. only go
0: as fast as, you know, your equity grows.
1: An example of, of what you just talked about is another interview of mine, and that's Gary Rappaport. Mm-hmm. Gary, Gary yep. has been adverse. He was adverse to institutional partnership for a long time until he did a roll up with one big institutional investor.
0: Yeah. But, and, and, and that's a great example. And, you know, Gary's, Gary's a friend and, you know, I'm, I'm an investor in, in some of his work. And, you know, that's, that's an example of a strategy that's worked for Gary very well, you know, but completely different, you know, from the, the
1: strategy others take. And, and yep. he's, he's done well. So let's shift gears for a moment. I wanted to get back into the pandemic a little bit. It has perhaps left irreversible changes to the real estate industry as we've known it. Has the accounting profession been affected? Sensing that a hybrid model of office and home would work well, how do you see it changing your industry and your business?
0: Yeah, I, I I see it changing our industry and our business, definitely. You know, many other businesses as well. You know, we were going to a streamlined, more efficient office footprint pre-pandemic to where we were going into, you know, we did a lot of studies and, you know, with people traveling to clients, training conferences, vacations, you know, we might've had, you know, 40% of our people in the office at any one time. And, you know, you look at our busiest time of the year during tax season, and I would stand on one side of our 60,000 square foot floor and my partner would be on the other side, his office, a block away. And we would look between us, and there'd be nobody sitting in in you know that twenty five thousand square feet in that side <laughs> of the building, <laughs> and and we'd look at each other and scratch our heads, and so we got we got smart, and pre pandemic, you know, we started you know nationally you know converting our our office space into you know an agile work environment where if you if you need if you're going to be in the office that day you know sign into a location it's on your iphone you know click that location confirm it go in and sit there and you know we would be able to get get away with less space you know now we have about you know i mentioned 10 or 15% of the people in in our offices i think what's going to happen is for many companies, you know, particularly ours, a lot of our work was done outside of the client's offices. It was done in our offices, you know, so now that work is done in people's homes. And I think what we're going to find is there's going to be a hybrid, you know, we we can do our work, uh, you know, people have their setups at home, but, you know, you don't have the collaboration you would normally have. You don't have the learning and education that, you know, you know, we got and always get from just being around other people. You know, everybody hears what somebody is talking about, working on how they're solving a problem, how they're speaking with a client and navigating through their day. And, you know, you learn so much from being exposed to all that. And, you know when you see the junior person you know maybe staring at their screen and you sense they have a question you can say hey what can i help you with and you know th- that that's really hard to do when you're in this you know work from home environment so i think there's going to be a hybrid i think you know we're going to get to first of all you know people are going to be wanting to be back in the office back you know to socialize restaurants events and you know as soon as it's safe to do that i think we're we're going to see much more of a drive towards that but i think we're going to also see you know people have gotten used to not commuting they've gotten used to the flexibility of working throughout you know the whole entire day and night and using some time in between to take care of some personal things and you know we might get into you know a normal you know 3 days in the office scenario and two days of the week are working remotely from home. We, we I think we're, we're going to get to, you know, we've seen a lot of evolution, you know, within real estate. You know, we, we saw the migration into the urban areas. We saw the redevelopment of urban areas, the live, work, play. You know, we already saw pre-pandemic the reconsideration and envisioning of what malls would be like with becoming entertainment centers, apartments, hotels outdoor pedestrian areas, you know, so that was kind of already taking shape. I think we're gonna see more suburban office hubs where there's touchdown space where large populations of people are living instead of, it's gonna be, I think, different in, depending upon the metro areas that you're in, such as, you know, New New York, uh, Boston, LA, you know, to some extent, Washington, D.C., you know, very difficult to commute and people normally drive one and a half to two hours, you know, for a commute, you know, and have public transportation as a norm. And, you know, they'll probably be, you know, less excited about coming into the office five
1: days a week. So Washington, D.C. market, because of the federal government influence, may have more resilience than many other markets. What opportunities are you seeing in the D.C. area that others may not see yet? The DC market is very resilient. I think,
0: you know, Amazon is creating a lot of vibrancy activity. I think, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, is causing change. And, you know, we've evolved, you know, 10 years in the last, you know, six months with technology. It was Zoom, Microsoft Teams, webex i think you know what we're going to see is you know don't bother you know let's not not bother meeting in person let's just do a video you know because it's it's just as easy and more convenient and we feel like we're seeing each other and amazon with home delivery i think you know is you know not not only changing you know how users buy but last mile warehouse space distribution centers we were seeing that before the pandemic, you know, that I think is also evolving 10 plus years. I think what we're going to see is, you know, as you have more flexible workspace, you're going to see, I think, people wanting living space to be more conducive to a work from home environment. And, you know, that includes apartments, condos. You know, we, we were already seeing you know, some of the workspace in apartments and, you know, luxury scenarios. But I think, you know, we're going to continue to see that'll be much more in demand and and people wanting to be living where there's more space and, you know, they can create, you know, an office space or two, because now you have both spouses working from home in a lot of situations, but, you know, you really only had one office (laughs) built out in a house,
1: you know? We talked a little bit about technology before. I, I just finished a book called Rethinking Real Estate, which is an interesting study uh, analyzing how technology has impacted the industry. And what one of the themes they talked about is that the companies that service the real estate may become the future of the industry as opposed to the property itself. So in essence, the service industry becomes more the things that you know, the real estate owners hire may be more profitable than the real estate itself going forward. I mean, are you starting to see some of that now? That's a great, great observation. And,
0: you know, I I think we're going to see more of that. You know, we're starting to see some of that. Some of it it relates to, you know, just the outsourced economy and, and with technology, a lot of Services that you provide as an owner, landlord, can be done better for the same price, a little more, which creates more ROI or less and less cost. And so I, I think you know we're gonna see more of that from an outsource standpoint, and then from a service standpoint fascinating. Yeah. I I, I think, you know, you, you, you look at, you know, the, the model of, you know, so like if you take a, you know, we work was, you know, let me grab some of your floors and, you know, we're going to do this service and, you know, we're going to do it better than you can and create a brand, you know, and then it was, we'll take the whole building, we'll buy the building. And then you saw,
1: Airbnb is another
0: one. Airbnb is another one, but but then you, you saw the migration of oh well why why should we why should we let WeWork make the profit on that right we'll, we'll create right. that ourselves which many did you know as you know in in, in our region and you take you know why hotel you know which is a you sure. know brilliant idea you know we can take many of these floors new gorgeous building and we'll operate it as a uh, temporary living space as a hotel and you know next iteration version we're going to buy or build the apartment building and we're going to do that and we're going to do that in some of the floors and we're going to rent out the other floors you know has has
1: your firm gotten involved in in real estate technology companies at all i mean have um, you you been involved in
0: yeah yeah, you know? yeah, we, we, we have been involved with as consultants and advising real estate companies on technologies to use, and we've been involved advising technology companies and that evolution. We've created some of our own technologies that help the investment management and fund administration components of real estate and you know that's with mapping information and and data with real estate you know take a large institutional real estate company you know that has many different funds many different structures asset management investment management overseeing various property managers we're we have products that we've created that analyze and aggregate data and provide meaningful information through so many disparate systems. So
1: you have software developers in, in your firm or are you hot? You outsource we, that. Um, both, both uh, we, we've worked with outsource
0: software development companies and we have some software developers internally. Oh, that's um, great. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I see that as the future as developing and creating software and products that, you know, benefit us as a company, but benefit, other firms, that they can either hire us to outsource, run it, do it, provide it to them, or they can buy the technology and do it themselves.
1: So looking back on your career, what business relationships have you had other than David that affected you most and had most impact on your career? Not just necessarily accounting people, but other real estate folks who have been influential in your career. There's been so
0: many, you know, I've worked with one of the things that I've enjoyed is working with real estate companies and their CFOs and principals who I used to work with when I was younger at at a firm and they went into industry and they've, you know, work at various different places like Chevy Chase Land, like Ross, like Capri, like Stonebridge Karras. And it's, you know, it's, it's so much fun working with their companies and them because we started out together. There's so many people in the industry, you know, that I've come across, you know, like when a Steph Tucker will recommend to Gary before why don't you talk to Kessler about this, you know, or somebody will recommend, you know, to someone else, you know, we've worked with one of the first things I ever worked on was with Tom Bazuto when I was a kid. And he was at Mm -hmm. Occupy Development and, you know, it's so much fun working, you know, with him and his team now, you know, and, you know, I had the opportunity, you know, to work with Doug Jamal and now I work with Norman on transactions and and Bob Mm -hmm. Kettler and John Shushan. And it's just so much, it's so much, it's rewarding for me to not, you know, just help them on a transaction, but to hear about their journey and how they got into doing what they're doing and mm-hmm. their trials and tribulations. And, you know, it's just it's just been a joy. The other thing is, you know, teaching at the University of Maryland in Georgetown, their MRED programs. So many people, you know, that I've had the opportunity to, you know, teach a whole class there for multiple years that work within our industry. Some at clients, some end up, you know, migrating to clients. And, you know, I'm working with with one now who was in my Maryland class who's really involved with tax policy, you know, and was involved with Opportunity Zones, with EIG. And, you know, just to be able to, you know, think through problems and issues, whether it's a transaction or, you know, a significant tax policy to, to move forward is, you know, Just so rewarding. Well, the
1: the next question, I think I I know what you're going to answer, but I'm going to say it anyway and ask, over the years, have you considered opportunities to leave accounting and either become a sponsor and or developer, become an intermediary? And did you consider it and why? And if not, why?
0: That's such a fabulous question. And, you know, of course, I've considered it. You know, I feel like, you know, I love what I do. I love accounting. I love our firm. I love our industry and, you know, the connectivity that I get to have to, you know, so many throughout the country and certainly in in the D.C. market. And Mm -hmm. what I always think about is, you know, I get to live through the uh, sponsor and the intermediary and the private equity fund and, and lender through what what I do, but a- absolutely. I came close to joining a real estate company that was in Madison, Wisconsin. A client of mine said, you know, you 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 know, need to be our CFO. And it was mm-hmm. right right around, I love working with them and still, still love working with them. And they i thought it was a great opportunity and it was just before i was i was i made a partner and i thought long and hard about it and talked with our managing partner who said you know well you know you're going to be partner someday you know it could be next year or the year after that so don't don't not factor that into the decision and so of course i said you know what i, I want to stick around for that and then you know when when i'm with the private equity funds when i'm with you know Class A sponsors, I get so excited about what they do, and I think that would have been a wonderful career, but I, I do love what I do.
1: The answers I've gotten from other service providers have been primarily because they enjoy the variety of, of being able to work with different people on different different tasks and different projects. Whereas uh, I, you I, would, I totally
0: would, agree with that, totally agree with that. I, I, I get to work on so many different right. things and see so many different things. In, in, in one single day that you yeah. know and I and I and I always enjoyed working with you know so many people that
1: are coming through our firm. Yeah I as an intermediary myself for many years no no two days were the same. And so you you come in the office, so what am I working on today? And it could be completely different than the day before or the day the next day. So yeah completely I, different I enjoyed-
0: and you, you sometimes I'll have a you know, pre COVID, I'd have a business trip canceled and my whole day would be free. And I would go into the office with nothing on my calendar and I would say to myself, let's just see what happens today. And I would get involved in entrenched in something I never would have thought I would get entrenched in. Somebody would call out of the blue, you know, uh-huh, hey, sure. working on this deal. What do you think of this? And, you know, and then all of a sudden that becomes the activity of
1: the day. Mm-hmm. Yep. So what, what characteristics in your experience make a great commercial real estate accounting advisor? What do you, what do you suggest? What are the, I think it, that it's, you think? it's understanding
0: the, the business of the client that we're working with. It's understanding their strategy their their deal understanding you know what their goals are and what the goals of the investor are because you know something can be structured differently depending upon what what the goals are and then being able to provide alternatives and really being clear about what the what the risks and opportunities are And I think being able to, you know, involve others from our firm that have different experiences in a fluid manner. And, you know, oftentimes what, what we hear is, I want the, I just want the answer, you know? Okay. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I don't want this to take, you know, all week. And I think being able to provide personal knowledge and information You know, but I'm the first to say, this is what I think. Let me go talk to one of my experts and and make sure there's something I'm not missing and, you know, get back to you immediately. So I think it's the the depth of the knowledge and and expertise, understanding what their goals and objectives are, and being responsive, timely, and, and quality. You know, probably, you know, half of what we do is of a compliance nature. You know, the government's, you know, requires me to file a tax return, the lender and investor requires the audit. And, you know, it's being timely, quality, fair on pricing, that's important. But also, you know, what else are you going to give me, you know, a value, you know, And, and that's what we try to do is insights. Yeah. Insights, insights. And and I think, you know, one of the things I've enjoyed that I think is valuable also is just the involvement with industry organizations. And whether it's you and I have a connection from ULI, NCSHA, DCBIA, Real Estate Roundtable, you know, just being engaged and and knowing what's going on is very helpful. You know, I, Mm -hmm. I see it also as, you know, a way to, you know, connect and, you know, help other people with their businesses and, you know, help our business grow
1: as well. So, what are some of the biggest wins, losses, and surprising events of your career, David? Just out of curiosity.
0: Biggest wins, surprises, and losses, you know, I've been humbled, you know, at every step of my career, you know, inside the firm as I've obtained more opportunities, confidence, you know, from the leaders in our firm, you know, being promoted into this role, you know, which I take, you know, very seriously. And, you know, clients I've worked with, you know, some of the biggest, you know, wins really relate to seeing people who have started with our firm as interns or fresh out of college Mm -hmm. and become, you know, very, very uh, successful accountants, partners, being promoted and you know continue to carry on the legacy and you know you know they're going to be the future of the firm and Mm -hmm. you know that that's very very exciting and gratifying you know i've had the opportunity you know to work you know I, i love working with new clients i consider you know every new client you know and relationship a win you know just being able to help somebody you know I had a client tell me in hindsight, they became a very successful salt, uh, wind developer, energy, renewable energy. And after the fact, I, I had them say, you know, I, I never could have started this business without you guys. Come oh, that's and, you know, I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, you know, you, you knew the, the the guy that was starting the business you you were able to connect the power utility company because of your relationship they never would have done work with this new startup you know because they're doing billion dollar deals all over the world and they never would have got the turbine from John Deere without all the pieces that you put together and for us, our company, you know, I think we did a $20,000 feasibility study for them. It was, you know, you know, very low fee. But to me, the gratification of, you know, wow, we made a difference there. I, I work with a public company and we helped sell about 50 apartment buildings of a subsidiary of a large public company. And they, you know, the subsidiary was a client. The parent company hired an underwriter, investment banker. Come in, sell this division. The subsidiary CEO said, Come to the meeting. You know, you guys have to be involved. And, you know, I think they're going to want to not have you guys involved because the investment banker wants to do it themselves. And we sat with them for a day and we told them what we thought the strategy should be. And they said, You guys need to be a part of this team and run this and so we we ran the sale ended up working with multiple buyers and the public company and the purchase allocation and the tax treatment and the diligence and put together the the war room and you know i had a chance to run that and work with you know so many others in our firm and you know It was just so exciting to see all that happened, you know, and I I found myself, you know, looking back thinking, would I ever have expected to be involved in something like that? You know, and I couldn't have done it without the support of so many others. The other thing that was a huge win and a surprise is, you know, there's actually an accounting firm named after me and one of my partners in Los (laughs) Angeles. Okay. Um, and it's a, a former manager of ours out of our LA office that that worked for me and me and a partner of mine named his firm Cohen and Kessler after us, and uh, that was humbling. You know, that was
1: humbling. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. So, what about setbacks? And what what things happened to you that you you know kind of regret, or things that just a loss, or something that. Did you learn from maybe something that that happened? That-
0: yeah, you know, I, I've I've learned, you know, certainly with client losses is, is is really painful, you know, and I've learned that you you need to pay attention to every client as a as a highest priority, and you know, as we grow, you know, we need to make sure that everyone is 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 taking care of you know every client. And certainly we have priorities and we have to adjust our priorities. But, you know, that's one thing I've learned. The other thing I've learned is, you know, be be open and honest and, and transparent. And, you know, what we're doing, there's a lot of pressure and there's deadlines and there's an enormous amount of work. But, you know, we're not performing heart surgery and, you know, generally no one's going to die. and you know, they could they could get or lose a lot of money, so that's important. But you know, the honesty and the transparency, you know, if we need more time to finish, you know, I'm the first one to say to the client, what's the downside if we need another couple days, if we need another week? I'm trying to balance priorities here. And you know, you usually, you know, we'll hear that, you know, we have some flexibility if this is important to you, and I can even call for an extension, you know, what problems are you running into? And sure. you know, be be honest. That's what I've learned is is don't internalize and stress over all these things. You know, just get it out there on the open and, you know, let's figure out how to make it all work. You know, these these everybody has their own issues they're dealing with. You know, so that's clearly something, you know, you know, some of the Actually, you know, the biggest losses are, you know, losses of life. You know, I've seen Dave Resnick pass away, Stu Fetter pass away, other partners that have been, you know, very influential in my career pass away. And uh, that's always a shock. So, you know, anytime something like that happens, you know, you,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you have to keep your priorities straight and you, sure. uh, you know, re- really have to enjoy every day. I try to enjoy every day.
1: Let's go into more personal things now. So what, what are your life priorities among family work and giving back,
0: David? Yeah, you know, I, you know, family is very important to me. When I was, I have two adopted children from Korea. They're 23 and 22. They were five months and seven months when they came into our homes. And when we were waiting for our first, Nathan, Nathan, My trip with Dave Resnick in Madison, Wisconsin, he said to me, you know, again, Davey, baby, just remember, you know, what's important is the quality of time you spend with your kids, not the quantity. And I thought about that long and hard. And I was, you know, I was very skeptical. You know, I thought he meant, you know, don't stop working as hard as you're working now and you Mm got to keep giving me all these hours. But then I I realized, you know, as I started raising the kids with my wife, that it really is the quality of time and and always be present. And, you know, I, I try to carve out time for my family, you know, as my kids, you know, were growing up. And even now, you know, whether it's school events and overnight trips and ball games and time at the beach, you know, we, we spend a lot of time at the beach at Ocean City in Anna Maria Island Florida and uh, we love it and I try to spend a lot of time on uh, my bicycle or, or running and uh, now I try to spend a lot of time on my peloton since I'm at home <laughs> uh, and, and that, that's been a, a, whole, a whole new addition to my life that sure. I, I really enjoy I'm on the board of junior achievement you know I really believe in you know financial literacy. For, for kids, especially underprivileged kids, you know, I think it's so important and I, I've enjoyed being on that board for, for quite some time. I was on the board at, at the Barker Adoption Foundation for a number of years and turned off of that last year. But, you know, I and, and you know, I, I think giving back is important. And, you know, I try to volunteer my time and, and contribute, you know, to a number of different organizations. That's great. So what advice would you give your 25-year-old self today, David? My 25-year-old self, I would say, you know, give your all every, every single day, you know, be curious, work hard, always be looking to improve, and you know, I think that it's all about what can you contribute to your organization and if you focus on understanding everything you can about your organization and their goals and making a contribution and going above and beyond, not only, you know, will you be helping your company, your enterprise, but you'll gain so much more for yourself. And, you know, I've, I've learned that, you know, because i've regretted working on certain things and maybe somebody else was working on something so much cooler and i realized that, that every, with every opportunity that you're involved with comes another opportunity and mm-hmm. you know and and that's happened you know throughout every step of your life you know and i think we get so you know we we get so immersed in you know, oh, how's this going to benefit me? And is there something better that we overshadow how beneficial what we're doing right now can be? And those early morning breakfasts, I'll never forget, you know, that we go down at 7.30, you know, to the economic club or some other ULI event. And, you know, you you maybe wanted to sleep in, and why am I bothering to drive all the way down here? One time I found myself saying that the whole drive down and, you know, I really could use some extra sleep. And I found myself sitting next to the owner of Gibson Guitars and who was, you know, mm-hmm. at this event at my table. And I thought, this is unbelievable. You <laughs> have the opportunity for 45 minutes to talk to the owner of Gibson Guitars. This is like right, how awesome, you know. and. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I always try to find, you know, the the, the nuggets
1: through everything that my, my, my way. So if you could post a, bill, a statement on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, David, what would it say? Oh, my goodness. You know, I think it would
0: say enjoy every moment. Life is short and fast.
1: That's great. That's great. Well, David, this has been a very wide ranging and excellent interview, and I appreciate your time. It was it's interesting to learn about you and your firm and the growth and it's an exciting time obviously with the pandemic we all have a lot to think about but I think you know, there's there's a good future in our industry I believe so thank you for your time
0: Oh it's it's such a pleasure thank you for having me I think there's you know great opportunities and you know like like everything you know with every challenge there there comes the next opportunity Thanks David thank you
1: So we just listened to an interview with uh, David Kessler of Cone Resnick, interesting conversation about his career and the accounting profession relating to real estate. And so normally at this time, we have a postscript conversation. And I wanted to thank Tom Amos, who left me as of the last episode and moved on to better things. And I want to introduce my new sidekick, Colin Madden who's with the Meridian Group in Bethesda. And uh, Colin actually was trained as a CPA in college. So he brings some interesting perspective to this conversation. So Colin, welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate.
2: Yeah, happy to be here, John. And uh, yeah, as you said, my background is in accounting, was a CPA right out of college. And I've since kind of transitioned kind of through the back office accounting into fund management, where I, where I uh, was at Carlisle and now I'm doing asset management with the uh, Meridian group and still have a bit of accounting still in my system and in my, in my daily workload, but I, I kind of got out of that. So <laughs> ha- happy to be here and glad uh, to help you out.
1: Great. So what did you think of the interview with uh, David Kessler?
2: I thought it was great. I, as I, I did come from an accounting background, I, I saw a lot of similarities in, you know, how we chose our career path, how family was involved in the decision. What surprised me was how entrepreneurial he did seem and how change was always uh, a constant in his decision-making and kind of outlook for his business. And I I saw similarities in in how I think from that perspective. So yeah, I I think it's tough to, to imagine an accounting firm being kind of like a startup, but how he, the size of their firm, in the beginning, when he first got there, and what it is today, how they how they grew so rapidly in the past, you know, twenty years is is pretty remarkable. And I think it is that entrepreneurial spirit and that that business know how that that got them to to where they are today. And that's that's the the thread of the conversation that I found most fascinating.
1: So I'm interested, college You you came out of school and went. You know did not go into public accounting per se. Why did why did you decide to not to do that? Just out of curiosity.
2: So I actually did do a quick stint in public. Kind of a similar decision process that David had. I went to RSM, which at the time was McLadry and they've since merged and become RSM. But yeah, I think when you choose that accounting path, all your professors kind of shove you. It's not even a general nudge, it's a shove into public. <laughs> so it's it's basically at least the next two years after college are are kind of laid out for you. It's get your CPA and do at least two years of public. So, I I did that, and you know most most of my classmates were going big four, and I interviewed with McLadry at the time, which is is also a regional firm, not not as large. I think it was maybe the sixth largest at the time, and it I did have that feeling of you get a lot more experience in in a firm that size, whereas if you go to you know the PwCs or the KPMGs. Your first year or two, you might solely be auditing, you know, IBM's cash account. So I, I thought the smaller firm you get to, you know, the audit jobs are a lot shorter. It's it's only a week or one week to three weeks compared to one client for the entire season. Um, so you get to, you get a mixed bag of clients, you get, you know, exposure to different markets, different business risk, et cetera. So that's, that's kind of why I chose McLadry And it, it it seems like David chose, you know, kind for the same reason. So, yeah, I, I was in public.
1: <laughs> but, but then, yeah. you know, he stayed and he found it to be an interesting, you know, I guess they had enough change within the firm to make him want to stay. Mm-hmm. But you decided that, you know, you wanted to try something else, apparently, after a couple of years then. I, I feel like I have nothing to show for
2: it, but I do have just an entrepreneurial drive in me. I think. When he first started, what what did he say? There was about 10 to 20 employees. Is that
1: right? Well, actually, I think it was larger
2: than that. Maybe. Okay. So he joined in 85 and there are about 100 people. So I think McLadry at the time was was probably closer to 5,000. So although it it was a smaller regional firm, it was still a large company. So I think the client base I was working on... And the size of the company, you know, and I, I had always figured I'd do two years of public and, and get out while I still could. Mm-hmm. So I went over to Carlisle just because of my interest in, you know, investment firms and private equity, you know, get get experience in an in institution like Carlisle. So that was that was kind of my path. And ultimately I always wanted to get into asset management. But you know, sometimes you have to work your way into it through a few routes. And that was my route.
1: Mm-hmm. So so, any other takeaways that you had from the discussion at all?
2: Yeah, I, I, what, what shocked me, and I, and I kind of brought it up earlier about the change was he said, if it, if it ain't broke, change it anyways. So, I guess that, that kind of surprised me, especially you think accountants are very, you know, middle of the road. It seems to be like a static industry, not and change become or change occurs slowly. So, that kind of caught me off guard that he said that. And yeah, I guess my question to you is, did that surprise you? And yes. second question is, do you think he is where he is today and his firm is where he is today because of that mindset?
1: Well, I think David is a little bit unique. He thinks a little lot more out of the box maybe than what I classify as the green eye shade type mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, personality yeah. that I think of accountants being who... You have a pretty tunnel vision view thing of things, you know, make sure that everything's right and done. He has more of a consulting viewpoint
2: mm-hmm.
1: and more of a client service viewpoint. So put yourself in the client's shoes. What do they really want from me? We're a service organization. We're trying to serve our clients' needs and anticipate what they're looking for from us. Why did they come to us? And try to answer that question and, and service them the and, you know, as he said, compliance is 80% of their bit work. So mm-hmm. that's what they're trying to stay ahead of. What are the right. what are the compliance re- restrictions and requirements? Mm-hmm. So, but he does it in a collegial way and a way that is, you know, team oriented as opposed to, you know, advisory, you know, you must do this kind of thing. You know, I'm on your team. I'm here to help. I want to, I want to, you know, Make it work for the attorneys that you're working with, with your internal business people, your other consultants. We're just mm-hmm. one of the other, one of the team players. So you'll hand the ball to us when you need what we what we do, and we'll hand it back when we don't. You know, when we're done or whatever. So it's right. kind of the approach he took, I think.
2: Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Did did anything surprise you about the interview, or or what? No,
1: I've known David uh, yeah. quite a long time, so. Yeah. There wasn't anything really out of left field, you know. His comment about David uh, Resnick, his mentor, putting a his business card on every seat on an airplane, yeah. I thought was a really interesting yeah, comment. that's Right?
2: Yeah. I wonder what uh, <laughs> real what marketing kind of returns he got on that. How many? Yeah. What his hit rate was? But yeah, I thought that was funny as well.
1: Yes. So you know, I mean, a real marketer. And I right. met Dave Resnick before he passed. He he was a unique guy. He was. Mm-hmm you know, a real rainmaking type. That's why the mm-hmm. firm did so well. I mean, he he knew every real estate developer in the city and certainly in the residential market. Mm-hmm. But David was instrumental in growing the commercial side of the business too to get into it. That's why he joined ULI and got so active in it and, right. and all the other organizations. So, so you could tell he was, you know, networking is really important to him and business development. That's probably why he's leading the firm right now because he was, he's predominantly been the outward facing person. Yeah. There.
2: So So I think what, uh, this was number 42 interview. Is that right? This is number 41. 41. Okay. So, so up to this point, you had interviewed 40 people on your podcast and you know, they all have different backgrounds, different career paths. Is there a common thread that you are starting to notice across the board and if so did David have this commonality
1: yeah it's people uh, the yeah. relationships relationships networking you know the key is the the, the common thread throughout is the relationships with the, the people you do business with your clients your colleagues your customers your even your competitors you know what Ray Ritchie said in his conversation about Washington real estate is that it's a very collegial place, which is a lot different than other markets that he works, yeah. New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Boston, mm-hmm. a little more cutthroat. So, and I would say that you know, I've asked this to almost every, every one of the speakers that I've interviewed or the people they've all said, it's a pretty collegial place to work. People mm-hmm. get along, they go, you know, with the flow. Well, I will say though, you know there are a lot of difficult challenges ahead, and I didn't probe as much as I could, but he was just as uncertain as most people are about the impact of the pandemic. So right. it's it's nothing like any anybody's ever seen before. Mm-hmm. So it could have strategic secular change to the industry in many ways. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out.
2: Yeah, I think he. He said he was what CEO for two weeks when the pandemic hit. So yes, quite the crisis management as a task number one. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, oh, trauma fire. Joy. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you mentioned DC being a collegial industry or market, rather. What do you think that is? And and I find that a lot of your guests are very family oriented, and most of them are local. You know, DC yes. born and raised, most but not all, obviously. But do you think that? That kind of family first and, you know, local local background is, is what makes D.C. more collegial than most other large markets?
1: You know, it's really hard to say how a market evolves mm-hmm. like that. I've worked in Chicago. I've worked in Detroit. I've worked in Wichita, Kansas, worked in San Francisco for a while. It's hard to say. I, I will say that I've done business in New York, been up there a lot. New York just is a different place. I mean, New York is a unique place. They do business differently there than just about anywhere else in the nation. LA, I can't speak to, so I can't really tell, but you know, it's a, I think it's just an orientation that you get early on here. It's I think you might it might be generational families here that have been in the business for a long period of time. There's a lot of family office businesses here. The Saul family, the Donahoes, mm-hmm. you know, the the Smiths, you know, Charles E. Smith, and that, that the whole. There's a lot of you know multi generational real estate families. The the Cohens, you know, I will say culturally in this town in real estate, you're either Catholic or you're Jewish, and now African American now is is emerging too from mm-hmm. a cultural standpoint. Right, those are the two, the three strongest religious and cultural events in, in the real estate market here. So there, that's where the family orientation comes in because each of those religious traditions are fairly deep in family traditions. So mm-hmm. with one interesting perspective, a couple episodes ago with Brian Folger, mm-hmm. which was very interesting about the Mormon faith, which I wanted to get into because it's so unique and very deep in the family. And that's a very deep family culture there. Right. So you know i don't know if that answers your question but it's you know that's about the thread i can come up with about mm-hmm. why washington is a friendly place um, yeah. on a relative basis
2: yeah and it, it seems like i notice a lot of people talk about reputation on your podcast and i think that's just what it is just uh, reputations are are hard to build everyone must be careful to to protect what they've built which which i think is very important and you know a great trait to have Especially in business, so David did mention that you know they were fairly well set up to work from home once the pandemic hit. Do you have any inclination of what what someone, what a firm like that, or you know, other accounting firms and consulting firms might do when when we start going back to work? Do you think there's permanent permanent changes afoot, or do you think it's you know, it's it really interesting
1: home? with the accounting firms? I, I don't know if the changes is dramatic as it is for other organizations that are a little bit more in the office team oriented. You know, David said that he one of his partners and he would look across the office and there'd be nobody in between him and like the other side of the floor. Right. Because people would be out and this was before the pandemic even. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the accounting profession, people are out visiting, they're with their clients, they're meeting, they're in front of them. It's like the brokerage profession in real estate. And, you know, even to the to less extent law firms, I would say law firms, you're probably more in your office than you would be in accounting. You're not at your client's office very often. You might be in court if you're a litigator. But most of the time, if you're drafting documents, you're at your desk or you're reviewing documents or you're counseling people or whatever, you're there. So I think law firms are going to be more impacted than accounting firms, for instance, or, or consulting firms. Right. And I did have two lawyers, actually three lawyers on recent podcasts, and asked that specific question. And they're not sure. The concept of plug and play for an, you know, a senior partnered law firm probably doesn't sound real good for them. <laughs> right. Although they've gotten used now to working at home. So they think that the workday might be reduced to three days a week that you go in, two days mm-hmm. you're at home, and two days at home. I mean that seems to be what I'm hearing out there, and that could be across the board. Mm-hmm. Could be interesting. Yeah, it'll be
2: it'll be interesting, and I think it's a tough answer to you know tough question to answer just because yeah. no one, one does know. I think even it's company by, by makers company, don't know.
1: yeah, it's um, company by company, and what the culture is. Mm-hmm. I mean, some software firms say yeah, you can work from home anytime you know as long as you want. You don't have to come back to the office at all. They're used to the virtual you know meetings and. Have been doing it for years and will continue to do it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, there's a lot of virtual people in, the, in that industry. But you know, real estate is definitely plus to press the flesh. And the very nature of the industry is you want people to use space. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's <laughs> the whole concept. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. You know, if you, you have space have to, yeah. you have space to rent, you want people to use it. Exactly. Right?
2: Yeah. So, we'll just have to figure out how to make them want to use it more. I I,
1: I suppose exactly. So hopefully, and we I toured Oliver Carr's new project in Bethesda recently, and you know he's he's trying to convert office space into into more of like a hotel where you feel like you're being you're coming into a welcoming setting with mm-hmm. you know, an entertainment venue mm-hmm. on the ground floor you know, comfortable seating and lighting and to make real estate an entertaining place to be, regardless of its current use. And I think that's going to be important. And the on the retail side, I think customer service is becoming more and more important. So more of the individual contention that you pay is a is you're not going to have the the self help type thing as much unless you go to Costco or something that is Know, a Walmart or a Costco or something like that, mm-hmm. but you know, the more personal touch a boutique retailer has, the better success they'll have, including restaurants too. I think long term.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think it's going to be more of an experience than kind of a, a check the box of a of an errand to run. So, right. I think most objects you used to buy, you know, in brick and brick and mortar retail, you can do online. So, if if you're going to go into these spots it's it's most likely for an experience that you can't get elsewhere so i think we'll see a lot of that in in retail uh especially but also in all asset classes
1: all right colin well thank you any any other comments or thoughts
2: no just i wanted to thank you again for letting me be a part of this i kind of love 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 what you've been doing and it's 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 great to listen in on these podcasts and happy to help help out so
1: great Well, great, Colin. Thank you. And welcome to the show. And thank you, listeners, for joining me once again. We'll be back with you in two weeks. And I'm going to sneak preview. Our our next guest will be two gentlemen from the Peterson Company, John Peterson and Taylor Chess, to talk about their respective lives and careers there. They were childhood friends growing up. By the way, I'll, I'll give that as a little preview. So until then, we'll talk in a couple of weeks. Thank you.